KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's election time, but then again, doesn't it seem like it's always election time? Candidates announced that they're running years in advance, and the media is constantly talking about which way it could go when it seems far too early to tell. President Biden has his work cut out for him a year from Election Day. 73% of Americans say things in the country are going badly, a high for the year. And in a potential 2024 matchup with Donald Trump, Biden trails by three points. That's CBS News Deputy Director of Surveys Jennifer DePinto talking about their latest poll a year ahead of the 2024 election. So much could happen in that time. Is it helpful or harmful to have such a long buildup to each election? The Biden administration is a good example uh, of a dynamic we continue to see, at least when it comes to the presidency, which is that you have basically a year and a half to get stuff done. Then you're into the midterms. As soon as they're done, you're into re-election mode. I'm Matt Leon, and today on KYW News Radio in depth, we talk with Dr. Benjamin Dworkin, director of the Rowan University Institute for Public Policy and Citizenship, about this constant election season, why it's gotten this way, how politicians can manage to get anything done when they're constantly campaigning, and the effects this has on voters. So, to start, I just kind of want your opinion. Do you agree with the sentiment that American society is constantly? in election season, whether they like it or not? It would certainly seem that way. Uh, And there are probably a bunch of reasons uh, that we can look to as to why it seems that way. It's both a a media function and there's also just a tactical factor here. People are working harder and longer in order to try and get their message out and to uh, organize voters. So whether it's Candidates like Nikki Haley and DeSantis, who are effectively living in Iowa, trying to generate votes months away. Iowa doesn't vote until the end of January, but they are here now uh, and they've been there you know, for months already trying to make uh, a difference. Chris Christie is in New Hampshire and effectively lives there, uh, trying to make that a place where he'll be able to cut through. So this has been going on for decades. We just get a lot of coverage of it now. So it's not just a once a day article you might read in a newspaper. Uh, Now it's just constant footage and B-roll that you'll see whenever you flick on the 24-7 news channels. And you say decades, but that's one of the things I wanted to talk about is this is not how it has always been because I've I've watched plenty of documentaries on presidential races and stuff like that. And, you know, 1960, Lyndon Johnson, they come to the convention and he might make a run for it, but he's not sure. And you, there are a lot of examples of candidates, and I don't mean fringe candidates. I mean people who legitimately moved the race still undecided by the summer of the election. Like, that seems crazy pants now when you look at the way we do things now. But this is a relatively new development in the history of our democracy, no? Within the history, I mean, it's obviously been decades, but uh, yes, in that we are over 200, nearly 250 years old, we did not always do it this way. For a long time, it was really a handful of insiders uh, who picked the candidates, who controlled the votes of their delegations if they had a convention. That was you know, how things got put together, the, the proverbial smoke-filled room. 
where the deal was cut to find somebody. And we had plenty of great candidates uh, and public officials who emerged from those smoke-filled rooms. But it wasn't very democratic, lowercase d. It wasn't open. And as you had splits between party leaders um, and the grassroots, there was a real move to reform the system. And that started in the late 60s, certainly on the Democratic side, so that by 72, you really started having an open convention process, an open primary process that didn't exist. A lot of states didn't have primaries. They would have a, their own little convention where a handful of people brought game together, picked who they wanted to back and went from there. Now you suddenly had every eligible Democrat being able to vote. And that was a completely new uh, kind of system. And so, yes, this is a, a reason that things have opened up. But what we should understand, the implications for the constant campaign theme that we originally started talking about, is that you have more than just 100 people to talk to now to win the nomination. Now you have to talk to tens of thousands which means you need the time to do it. You have to go out there and go to chicken dinners and county fairs and all of these kinds of things, things that you really didn't have to do in the old days, as we would call it. Um, and I think that's just part of the development of the American democratic experiment. You mentioned media earlier as kind of part of this and how much of a role in the constant election is the media and not even a role, how much of a driving force because most of it at the presidential level, but you see it with the house and Senate control of Congress, stuff like that. We will see these polls put out, you know, we've had polls recently that show Donald Trump leads Joe Biden in a head to head race by whatever points. And it, it becomes talking points for pundits and panelists and all. But when you take a step back, you're like, we are f almost a little more than a year away from the presidential election. This poll means nothing. I can understand insiders, you know, with the with the party, with the campaigns wanting to know. But the average person who who cares? This does nothing. But it is an easy thing for the media to put up. It is easy for them to discuss. You don't have to dig into it. It's just something you can throw. How much of a role is that playing in this, that this stuff is presented constantly like it's breaking news when it's it's really not? Well, I think we should understand how and just recognize the obvious ways the media has changed. Um, because it's not just, as you said, easy. It's necessary. We now live in a 24-7 media environment. There used to be, you know, I grew up, we had a your morning paper, there was an afternoon newspaper, and then you had your local news, 22 minutes at six, you had your national news, 22 minutes out of a half hour, because they did the, the rest were commercials, um, at 6.30, then you waited till 11 to get some more local news, you know, see who won the ball game. But, but that was it. Now, because of the internet, because Ted Turner, you know, had this brilliant idea of creating a 24-7 news network called CNN. And then MSNBC and Fox and others had to do it. And they've got to find something to talk about. And so anytime somebody is out there at the, you know, campaigning at the fair or making some statement, that's opportunity. And not just to cover it, but to then have your pundit class 
talk about what we just saw and then to see whether one of them makes some, says something controversial, which now becomes a new issue. And so you have to fill 24 hours uh, of this stuff. And politicians who are desperately trying to get known, who are desperately trying to connect and get their message out to voters, will clearly, you, know, you put this kind of buffet in front of them, they're going to try and take advantage of it. They're going to try and find ways to get the media uh, to cover them. And why wait until a month before? You've got a lot. Uh, you know, Don't leave uh, all that space and all that time uh, for somebody else, your opponent, to build up their brand. You've got to be out there too. And this seems to me, and I know I, I'm throwing this on you, I don't expect you to know how stuff is covered and how elections work around the world. But from the little bit I've read, this seems like a uniquely American situation. And there are actually a lot of countries, democracies that have limits. Like you're not allowed to start campaigning until this date. You actually, I think it's France. You actually have to stop. You know, you can't within a a window around the election. Like we're the only ones. It seems like that just let this go buck wild for as long as we want. Right. (laughs) Yes, but there there's a different context. Um, so first of all, you've got your authoritarian governments and your dictatorships. They'll tell you when the election is. They'll tell you that they have one candidate. Thank you. And everyone will participate. And that's it. Um, you've got your uh, more Western type of uh, uh, style democracies. Um, many of them are parliamentary systems. So elections don't have an automatic date because at any moment the government can fall because the coalition can fall apart. You have you know, votes of no confidence uh, and things like that. So you end up with these situations where everybody is always angling uh, and they're always trying, you know, politicians are still trying to get covered. They're still trying, parties are still trying to get their message out, but they don't get to say, vote for me until a certain period of time. But it doesn't mean that you don't hear from them or they're not out there actively doing the things that politicians do. It's just that the, you know, the campaign ads, they're limited to a certain uh, time frame as you were talking about. But campaigning is an ongoing thing. So with what we have in the U.S., is this good for democracy? Because, I mean, aside from the fact you just get tired of the commercials and you get tired of the constant talk, which is always kicking the can forward, It seems to me it makes life tougher when it comes to actually governing because everybody is always in a holding pattern waiting for the next election. And then that election comes. Well, we've got to wait and see what happens here. Like It seems like the window to actually get stuff done is getting shorter and shorter because people don't want to take chances or don't want to put their necks out for a vote because they're worried about the next election. And that runway keeps getting longer and longer. There's a lot there in your in your question. So let me try and break it down, because first of all, this has been a fundamental question since the beginning of the Republic. This is why the the founders of American democracy tried to balance this. And what was incredible, you know, I mean, they gave Nobel Prizes to groups of people. They would have gotten one because no one had done this in the world before. They said, we're going to have this bicameral legislature. We want the House of Representatives, Article 1, the People's House, the first part of the Constitution, the priority, but 
every two years, they have to go in front of the voters and get reelected. But we understand that there are passions among voters, you know, a tide in the affairs of men, as Shakespeare used to say, you know, just where everybody was at one moment, they were all angry about something or upset. And so we needed something to be a slower, more deliberative party. And so that's a uh, body. And that's why they created the Senate with six year terms, staggered six year terms. Uh, so everybody wasn't on up on the same day all the time. This was a balance. The notion of checks and balances was all part of balancing the idea of we need to get things done, but we don't want to be disassociated from where the public is. So I point this out because for 240 some years, we've been dealing with these issues uh, exactly as you talked about. Your question was, is it good? You know, is, is this the best way to do it? It's hard to think of anyone who's come up with something better. That's really the thing. So there are definite faults um, and issues. And I think, as you pointed out, it's hard to get anything done. I think the system was designed that way. Democracy was designed not to be easy. Authoritarian governments have a much easier time getting stuff done. That's not necessarily a better system than what we have. Um, even though our system is frustrating and messy um, and filled with both good actors and bad actors. But there are moments, you know, what's therefore what's amazing is that we do get things done. What a lot of people, a lot of very uh, strong Democrats who you know voted for Joe Biden, very look very proudly and like, look at all the stuff the Biden administration actually did get done. There was COVID, there was this, it was uh, Inflation Reduction Act and any number of large things, uh, the CHIPS Act, they go through it. Any administration does this. But I think the Biden administration is a good example uh, of a dynamic we continue to see, at least when it comes to the presidency and these kinds of political dynamics, which is that you have basically a year and a half. You have a year and a half to get stuff done. Then you're into the midterms. As soon as they're done, you're into re-election mode. And so it's harder. But you have a, a year and a half to get things done. And sometimes America does get things done. I mean, that's despite all our faults, <laughs> it, uh, it, the system still is able to, to function. Now, that's always scary because you're relying on people of goodwill on both sides of the aisle to be able to come together. Kevin McCarthy. You know, the former speaker for all his uh, faults that were outlined in all those speeches when they threw him out of being speaker, in the end, cut the deal in order to keep the government up. We'll have to see uh, whether Speaker Johnson is going to be able to do that. In the end, you know, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer have to figure out a way to keep the whole thing going. And um, so long as you have people like that working there, who are willing to find a compromise, then even with all the faults, even with the constant uh, messaging and repartee going back and forth um, and debating talking heads and surrogates and candidates themselves, even with all that, this country actually does address some big things. We need to take a break. We will have more with Dr. Ben Dworkin right after this. This is KYW News Radio In-Depth. 
And we are back on KYW News Radio in depth, continuing our conversation with Dr. Ben Dworkin, director of the Rowan University Institute for Public Policy and Citizenship. There's no reason to think this isn't going to accelerate, and I'm looking forward to the day when we have a presidential election, and that night after that speech, people start declaring that they will be running in four years for president, like officially declare. Because I, I, there's no reason to think it won't happen you know, at some point, the effect on the public, just from a perception standpoint, when this is constantly being talked about and being thrown out there, do you have concerns about people just getting exhausted and, and tuning it out maybe even more than they are now? Sure. I mean, first of all, let me just say a comment about, I don't think there are lots of legal reasons not to officially declare at any, at, until a certain point. So, but people start making moves you know, all the time. Uh, and that's what ambition does. Uh, and that's a good thing because you want people to be held accountable. They're going to face an aggressive race from somebody who doesn't like them. Now, maybe they don't like them for personal reasons. Maybe they don't like them for ideological and policy reasons. Doesn't really matter. The point is you're going to be, someone's going to be challenging you, which is better than when you're not challenged from a democratic theory perspective. You're, Question sort of though boils down to does it hurt the voters? Sure, because we're all exhausted because there's only so much information you take in. It has probably contributed in some ways to the hyperpartisanship uh, that's at a different kind of level uh, than it was 30 years ago. Now, part of it is just the news we watch, right? We tend now because we have so many different types of media. You can watch news that just reinforces what you already believe. There's no unifying force. This is, you know, we are long past the days of three networks, Walter Cronkite, you know, on CBS being the most trusted man in America. So it's a constant, uh, this feeding of the debate that just goes on and on and on. There's a definite exhaustion to it. And the reason it has made, I think, us more partisan is because I can't keep track of all that stuff, most voters will say. And so I have to find the fancy word is heuristic, um, but it, it's a you know neuroscience word that just means we use a, a mental shortcut. And the mental shortcut is your party. So I just like Democrats, says one voter, right? And so, yeah, I'm basically, I don't have to pay attention. I'm going to vote for people who have a D next to their name and if I don't know who my county commissioner is and I don't know who my state rep is, it really doesn't matter because I know I like Democrats. That's basically where I am. Or I know I like Republicans. And so you're just going to vote for the people who have an arm next to their name. Why do people not study the issues? Because there's a lot. We're busy. We're trying to make ends meet. We're trying to raise kids and have families and you know pursue careers and all these other things. And we are constantly bombarded uh, by messages and themes and uh, huge amounts of information. So when more and more information comes in, it's more likely to say, I make no distinction between the D's and the R's. I just stick with one side. Then I can tune all this stuff out. 30 years ago, it was a, you know, it was different. You saw much more ticket splitting. Well, I'll vote Republican for the United States Senate, but I'm voting a Democrat for governor. That kind of thing happened. You go back to 1988, uh, George H.W. Bush won in 
uh, New Jersey. But lots of Democrats got reelected to the Congress at the same time. Um, you know, Democrats were getting elected to the United States Senate. That split almost never happens now, um, where uh, the president of one party wins your state and a United States senator in the same election from a different party will win. It used to be lots of places. So it's made us, it's not, it's not great. Uh, it's uh, exhausting and has contributed to some of these uh, larger things that I think cultural and societal observers would say are not the best things we want. It's hard to figure out, you know, is there an alternative system? Do we go and say you can't campaign until, like you were talking about before, until four months out? We're a country of 350 million people. You know, it's, it's hard to just talk. No one will show up to the Iowa State Fair then because then it's just, I've got to go to the biggest areas, the states that have the most people. I have to, you know, I'm just going to rely on TV ads because it's the only way to reach all those people. So every solution has its downside. The key, what makes this work, and I want to get back to it, is a willingness to compromise, to understand you're not the only people in the world. Um, and everybody doesn't think like you. Other people get elected and you have to work with them. And, you know, and those who are effective in Congress, those who are effective in the White House are those who say, I will not, I will reach out beyond. I will find a way to cut a deal. You know, the idea of, uh, of compromise, of bargaining, of negotiation, these were the fundamentals that a lot of people over the age of 35 grew up with. That's how you learned what government was, right? You know, not everybody agrees. They all come to Congress and they work together to figure out a compromise. And somewhere uh, in the 1990s, those things, bargaining, negotiation, and compromise became bad words. They weren't seen as the positive parts of like, this is why our country doesn't tear itself apart the way we see in other nations, because we understand bargaining, negotiation, and compromise. But when they become bad things, hey, it's your fault because you bargained, because you negotiated, because you compromised with somebody. That's why the country went off the rails. Well, that's a real dangerous thing, because then it's about, you know, the other side becomes the enemy, not a fellow citizen. Anything the other side wants, there is no compromise. You stand to your guns. And that manifests itself. And there have been a lot of uh, political careers ended um, because they compromise. Chris Christie will still talk about he hugged, gave a little bit of a hug to Barack Obama right after Superstorm Sandy when the president came to visit. And then when Chris Christie, who is a hardcore rock rib Republican, goes out and is running for uh, the nomination in 2016, people brought up that hug. I can't believe you touched them. It's hard to run a, a democracy like that. So that kind of um, finding people of goodwill on both sides who can respect the other, like you won, you're the one I have to deal with. Um, I would have lied, you know, I voted for the other, I supported the other guy who ran against you, but you won and we have to deal with it is part of it. And sometimes it means you don't get everything you want done. Biden can't get certain things done because he doesn't control, you know, the House. It is what it is. We'll have an election. We'll see if you can do better next time.
but you do what you, you you get what you can get and you move from there. The bottom line point, I think, is that we have to recognize that democracy relies on an informed and engaged electorate that is willing to work together. Lots of people say that. The people who uh, most often are succeeding in parts of politics today are the ones who don't necessarily believe that. And I think that has hurt the system. Yeah. And to that point, everything we've talked about, and if you wanted to deconstruct and start making changes, it's incredibly difficult to even address that because there's just so much money involved on so many fronts. So many people are getting incredibly rich just on the idea of perpetual election season, be it media companies, be it the political class, be it campaigns. There's just too much money involved that no one wants to turn the spigot off, right? Well, I think people want to turn the spigot off. They're just not in charge. Uh, and not- that's what I mean. Like the people that could really do something about it. Yeah, it, it's look, it, it, it makes it harder and it's gotten harder in the last five years because now you have members of Congress who can raise money, continue to get reelected because they see themselves more as influencers, like as if they're on TikTok than they do members of Congress. Like my job is not to pass legislation. My job is to uh, whip up the grassroots support for the party by going out on a news station and making some outlandish kind of claims. That didn't exist even five years ago. Uh, So yeah, these are, there is money to be made. And you go back, I mean, again, just to give a little bit of historical context, you know, in the early 19th century, you know, the first half of the 1800s, through the Civil War and a little bit afterwards, really in, you know, through 1875 in that area, you had party-dominated newspapers, right? I mean, there was no television, obviously, no radio at that point. Um, But that's why you had, like, the Albany Democrat or something like that, Uh, you know, the Springfield Republican. These were the newspapers, and they were party organs. And so the headlines would read, you know, our boys take, you know, take the Capitol, that kind of thing. And then you had a shift. Uh, it was a shift in, in, in news and media. And anybody who takes some journalism history classes basically goes learns this. It was a shift towards what's called public journalism, right? Our job is to cover and to report. And we have an editorial board that writes it, but our news should be is directed. It's, we're, not, we're trying our best not to be biased. Now, everybody's accused of bias. It's almost impossible. Someone's going to choose a word that is going to upset somebody. So it's not that they were ever successful, but the movement towards it was how, and if you still go into journalism classes, that's what they'll teach you. You know, what Fox and, and Rupert Murdoch, you know, to their credit, and other people have copied them. So it's not just them. But he realized, you know what? We make more money if we go back. If we go back and Roger Ailes uh, and these people said we can make billions of dollars by not worrying about whether we're you know, devoted to public journalism, but we're devoted to a particular side. That's how their editorial folks in the evening get picked and That's how they choose editorial coverage about what they're going to cover, what stories and how they're going to cover it. And MSNBC said, well, why are we letting them get this? We can can fill a role as well. Why is it driven? Like you said, because there's money to be made, which then breeds an entire class of 
people who will then come up and speak uh, and people who will comment on that. And everybody understands the money to be made, uh, which we have in a, thankfully, you know, capitalist society, but therefore decisions uh, that might not be considered the best thing for representative democracy are simply there because there's money to be made on it. And that's that's where we are. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.